everybody, it's October 30th, and this is your Epercussion episode 67. I'm joined by my regular crew of Megan Arns. Hello. Laurel Black. Hi. And Ben Charles. Hi, everybody. Hey, guys, so our guest is a good friend, and he is the professor at UT Knoxville, and he's also the director of the this coming Focus Day. So actually, this episode will probably premiere after this focus Just day <laughs> yeah uh which is um uh oh well but um yeah he's uh <laughs> so in that case man guys focus day was great this year <laughs> i guess it was great yeah <laughs> yeah congratulations congratulations on focus day he's also the director and founder of neef north uh new music chamber festival so hey andy how's it going good to see you guys thanks for having me and hope you're all <laughs> yeah yeah hey so tell me a little about halloween do you take donovan door to door or what I do. Um, <laughs> my son uh, is Donovan. He's four, and Aaron and I have made him be a construction worker for the last two years running. So this year we had to commit to getting a different outfit. So this year um, he's Batman. So we went to uh, Boo at the Zoo in Knoxville uh, about a week ago, and um, they had this great event there where this uh, the children can walk all through the zoo, and there's these booths and they get candy, and he comes home and sorts it out all over his rug and counts it, and he gets so excited about it. So it's been it's been a lot of fun. Uh, you you, really you chose an interesting time in your life to um, be the director of a focus day and start a new job at UT. And have a family. Yeah. Right. <laughs> <laughs> direct a summer festival. Direct yeah. a summer festival, yeah. Why did you decide to do all that at once? Yeah. <laughs> Really, it just sort of happened. When I was interim at UT, Aaron was pregnant with Donovan, and we didn't tell anyone until I was offered the tenure track job just because I didn't want all the, the kickback, you know. But <laughs> it's like it was uh, stressful enough as it was, but it all worked out and, and was for the best. So. <laughs> yeah, cool, cool. Well, what's happening at UT right now? Do you guys have some concerts coming up or anything? Yeah, uh, this is a big week for us coming up. Um, actually, Monday, I'm, uh, tomorrow, I'm headed over to Science Hill High School, who's playing at PASIC, um, to kind of help them with anything I can before they get ready. Um, Dan McGuire does a great job with those students out there, and so I'm going to hang with them. And then Wednesday night is our fall percussion ensemble concert um, at just on campus at UT. Um, playing this new piece by Anna Metters. Uh, I don't know if you guys know her music at all, but she's a younger composer. Her piece was premiered by UNC Greensboro um, at PASIC last year. And she came to Neef North as a fellow this summer, and her and I have gotten to know each other, and I've, I'm just very sort of viscerally fond of her music. Every time I hear it, I really, really just enjoy it right away. And um, so I'm excited to do that piece of hers. Um, and then we're doing some classics, uh, uh, Rain Tree by Takamitsu and um, Nishimura's music. If you guys know Akira Nishimura's music, uh, he's one of my favorite composers, but I find it sometimes hard when you're involved in all the cool new stuff happening to carve out time to get to some of the stuff that was written in the 80s and 90s. And so we're doing uh, Tala. And, One kind of uh, funny funny feature of Nishimura's music is like almost all the percussion ensemble pieces have an insanely difficult chime part. Yep. Yeah, uh, I think no exception there, yeah. Trying to figure out the right mallet to get the chimes <laughs> to sound really, really big without, you know, um, 
being too muted. And so, um, so yeah, so that's Wednesday night. There's a couple other pieces, but we've been having a lot of fun. And then the, the Sunday following, which is right prior to PASIC, um, my graduate ensemble, uh, Ensemble Knox, is doing a concert downtown Knoxville with Greg Stewart um, from University of South Carolina. And he's coming over to do some of Michael Pizarro's music. Uh, with us, uh, actually, Megan, we're using that SEC travel grant to help with that. So awesome! You and I gotta fi- figure out yeah, a way we need to, to, we need to brainstorm that. Simpini <laughs> and I are doing that this year. Right? Yeah, it's great. So yeah, yeah, yeah they so. have. For you guys who don't know, they have these like SEC travel grants where schools that are in the SEC can faculty members can apply for money to do an exchange at another SEC school. So yeah. cool. Yeah. And then. Um, on that show, we're also doing a couple of pieces by Simon Luthler and Michael Meyerhoff, uh, which are both European composers. Um, and Brian Arkenall and Heinrich Larsen are stopping over from Europe, hanging out in Knoxville for a couple of days, helping my students, and then I'm driving them up to Pasek for the focus set. So it's, we're getting the added benefit of hanging with some of these artists before, since they're coming from so far away this year. Has, so. has Brian ever played at Pasek before? Um, yeah. Uh... He played on Focus Day concert a few years back that I remember. I can't think of what piece it was. Yeah, because I I've I, I don't know him personally, but I I remember a long time ago I saw a bunch of his YouTube videos and he's unbelievable. Um, so I was excited to see him playing this year. Yeah, Brian was a freshman at Kentucky when I started my masters, so I've known him for a long, long time. We're very close. My wife Erin, who's a percussionist, and he are like sushi buddies, and um and He's certainly one of the finest musicians I've ever had the pleasure of knowing. He's really talented and great guy, and and I'm really excited for people to get to hear his his work uh, at Focus Day. So, what are sushi buddies? Uh, <laughs> I eat sushi together. <laughs> that sounds great. I'm just sushi buddy. Yeah, I know. I, uh, I sort of like bridge buddies. People with money get together, have sushi, yeah. play bridge. Right. When I was in grad school, I didn't eat a lot of sushi, and and Aaron loved it. And so her and Arkanal would go out like once a semester when things were crazy, like right now, and just like go have dinner and and hang out. And they're they're pretty cool. tight. So, yeah, awesome. that's good. Well, we are the um, um, we're really considered the uh, most foremost no nonsense percussion news source. So <laughs> I'd like to give you give you a Facebook question that we have. And it's it's from a friend of the podcast, Mike Truesdell. He says, Dear Dr. Bliss, how can one person be such a great percussionist and pedagogue but still lack every fundamental skill for NBA Jam? Yeah. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> I feel like if we're no-nonsense, we just entered into office territory, and we need, like, a count of, like, three episodes since our last nonsense. <laughs> right, yeah, yeah. I think that would be a welcome addition to the show. Um <laughs> Mike and I have been friends for as long as almost anybody I can think of from a sort of professional standpoint. We were in drum corps together in 2002 or something like that. And um, so Mike's been with us from the beginning in Neath North at the festival, at least. And um, we, in the early days of Neath North, Megan was around for this. Um, <clears throat> we used to stay at Omar Carmenatis' house. The faculty lived there. And uh, his wonderful wife and family would go to Florida on vacation for the two weeks we were there. 
and we would just kind of take over the house, and Mike and I would fill a lot of evenings playing NBA Jam on the iPad. So we have a long uh, feud over who the expert NBA Jam player is. But <laughs> I see. Yeah. <laughs> well, well um, I was looking at the um, you know, the Focus Day concerts. Are you guys playing something at Paysnake all those days? Yeah. Um, I'm not performing. Uh, there's a there's a stipulation in place as host of the Focus Day that you're not allowed to perform, um, which is relatively new. It's you know meant to protect from. I don't know really who would do this, but someone sort of like programming themselves throughout the day or something. So yeah, uh, uh, so, needed more stress. Play all day long. <laughs> yeah, right, exactly. But Neefnarf will be playing. Um, Aaron and Carrie and Mike are playing this amazing piece by Simon Lufler called B, um, which is unlike any piece I've ever been a part of in my life. I got to play it a couple of years ago. It's for four tabletop fluorescent light bulbs and um, guitar foot pedals. And the foot pedals are all daisy-chained together through quarter-inch cables, and there's about eight of them. And as you step on the different foot pedals, it's sort of opening and closing this flow of current and this feedback loop that is changing. And there's you dial in the mixer to get all these different pitches, and then eventually you start turning the lights on and off. And at the end, um, you place your hand on the player next to you, and somehow, I'm not a physics major, but it closes the circuit of, of current. And when I touch Mike's arm, the sound changes, and it's like it's it's really fascinating. And, That's so uh, cool. Yeah, I think people are really gonna enjoy it. That's I think closing the three o'clock hour. What was the uh, composer's name again? Simon Lufler, uh, <clears throat> um, a student of uh, Simone Steen Anderson in Europe, and uh, has some really super cool stuff. We've we've done some of it at the Nifnar Festival, and and I've enjoyed kind of collaborating with him over email and um, I think people are really going to enjoy that piece or at least I hope so what happens if lightning strikes the building while you're yeah, touching each you. other I shocked Mike in rehearsal with my wedding ring I, I touched <laughs> oh my gosh <laughs> because it was heating up on his arm so yeah I, I that part was a little scary but we made it through so <laughs> was it 1.21 gigawatts right yeah <laughs> <laughs> You know, my, my my father had this this issue with his hand once, and he lost a lot of feeling. It still hasn't come all the way back, but he was preparing for a lecture, and he was plugging in the projector or something, the extension cable, and he didn't realize, I guess, his thumb and his first finger were touching the metal, and he plugged it in, and it, like, shot him against the wall, and I guess he passed out for a good couple of seconds. You know, the students Jeez. were pretty freaked out. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna paraphrase a little quote from um, the person Megan's gonna tell us about. So, uh, this person said in a, a response to a question in an interview I listened to just uh, earlier this morning. So I'm gonna skip some things and um, cut it down a little bit just so that it kind of sounds a little more focused. So, um, that moment we witnessed is a seed that is growing exponentially. It's starting to flower not just in the big cities in the U.S., but the smaller cities everywhere. My job as a member of this community is to do whatever I can to turn those seeds into outrageous, weird flowers. So, mm -hmm. Megan, who do you think said that? 
Yeah, so that was Claire Chase, who is a now former executive director of the International Contemporary Ensemble, based in New York, also known as ICE, I-C-E. Um, and I came across an article on New Music Box, which is a great source for information and news on uh, contemporary music, if you haven't checked it out before. But this article was called The Next Phase of an Institution Dedicated Fiercely and Uncompromisingly to New Work. And that, of course, is ICE. And um, the next phase is referring to Claire Chase stepping down as the executive director um, and deciding to just be a musician again and and also a staff member in, in contributing ad administratively to the organization, but focus on playing more. So that was a big piece of news in the contemporary music world because Claire has been growing this group for about 15 years. Uh, she started it with her classmates at Oberlin 15 years ago, and their mission was to create an artist collective in the tradition of radical trailblazers. They wanted to form an American ensemble that played the music of their time with the precision and distinction of European groups like EIC, or Ensemble Intercontemporain, and they wanted to forge a new kind of non-profit organization, one that was a hybrid and adaptive identity as a producer, advocate, educator, and transformative force for cultural change. So this is a huge mission, and Claire, if you look at the Claire's bio and also the bio of ICE, they have really accomplished this in the last 15 years. It's absolutely incredible the way they've been able to present contemporary music in a new way. Um, and as for how they started, here's a little quote from Claire. On January 6, 2002, the original ICE formation was a ragtag concert at the Three Arts Club in Chicago. We produced it with $603, which is what I had in my bank account at the time, amassed from my holiday catering tips. <laughs> Isn't that crazy? Just took that money and just produced it on her own budget. Um, and all the way up until last year, looking at some of their stats, the group played 151 shows, they gave 91 premieres, and they performed 10 new operas. Uh, they also developed a lot of new programming through a pr new program called Open Ice that is programming free and open to the public. And that free and open to the public has been central to their mission since since this very first concert in 2002. Um, and Claire's final act as ICE executive director is, uh, here's another quote, I logged into Luigi, ICE's database, named, of course, after Lu uh, Luigi Nono for his collaborative ideals, to see what I had made in concert fees playing with ICE last season. Luigi told me it was $25,650, an amount in 2002, and that's just concert fees for playing flute, right? An amount that in 2002 I never in a million years would have believed I'd made playing the music that I love most with the people I love most. I am donating that amount, 25650 to ICE Formation today with the same spirit of adventure and big dreams as when I gave $603 to ICE in the beginning. Isn't that cool? Yeah, it's wild. That was, that was really awesome. Yeah, um, the, little, the little bit I saw was, uh, yeah, a, a approximately $500 startup into a $1 million organization over the course of 10 years. Um, and I, I also saw something that was said two and a half million dollar organization. So it's either a million or two and a half. I don't know. Yeah, maybe they're referring to different different th parts of their budget or something. Yeah. Or, yeah, different points um, in time. Maybe the, the bigger one was more up to date. I don't know. Yeah, possibly. 
So, you know, Claire will still be around. They're based out of New York, and they have a large collective of musicians. If you look on their website, um, it's a very large instrumentation, and they do not play as a full group all the time, so they have subsets happening. The percussionists of the group are Nathan Davis, Ross Carr, Dustin Donahue, and Mike Truesdell, as uh, Andy has mentioned several times so far. And Ross Carr has taken a big leadership role, and he will want to be one of the um, people stepping up to fill the shoes of executive director. There will be co um, two, two directors now. So Ross Carr will play a big part of that. Have you guys ever seen an ICE concert before or know any of the concerts? I have not. Yeah. Um, I know Claire also performs with Svet Stoyanov quite a bit. Um, hmm. And I think she might have been at Miami one time. I don't think they performed, but I might have met her and seen a little bit of a rehearsal. But I know that Svet speaks very, very highly of her. She, um, I thought this was this was interesting. She talks about being transfixed by Verez's density 21.5 when she was 13 years old. Um, mm -hmm. She says it completely transformed my life, and apparently, according to this uh, her own her own word, this interview that you can you can find online, she's got some nice uh, speeches and addresses and interviews. But she was asked to perform at her junior high graduation, and she tried to program density 21.5. <laughs> <laughs> And she was just so taken by it and excited by it, and of course she was shot down, and of course did a rousing um, rendition of Danny Boy instead. <laughs> so, yeah. uh, but, she, but she goes on to say that being denied in this way really ignited something in her that still burns to this day. And like Megan said, it began with a group of um, graduate friends in, from Oberlin, um, about to graduate in a dwindling job market, and yeah, they turned this little chunk of money into this big thing and this organization that's given over 700 premieres. Um, so that's really a, a neat story, I think. Oh, yeah. yeah. I saw her play that live um, at Millennium Park in Chicago. We also did uh, ionization on the same concert that ICE had organized. And she's just, an, I've seen her play online a lot too, but she's just an incredibly dedicated, perf I mean, she's a very skilled musician, obviously, um, but you can just tell that she's so committed to her craft. And I think for someone to be such a talented musician and administratively um, and creatively have this vision and be able to go for it, I mean, we all are trying to make projects happen, right? And we know how hard that is. So for someone to completely dedicate themselves to it, but also be practicing the art in the same time, I just think that's super inspiring and something that we're all trying to do and she's just such a great example of of going for it and making it happen and fighting for for something she really believes in. Yeah, I, I caught that article as well and it really caught me off guard. I mean, she's been so successful, but, um, you know, I think we can all relate to how frustrating it can be sometimes when we're all doing jobs we love, but whatever part of the job you're doing, then there's the other part that you're sometimes not able to get to, whether it's the performing or the teaching, or you wish you had more time for your students, or you wish you had more time at your instrument, or or whatever, and, and uh, I, I was surprised to hear the announcement at first, but it, it completely makes sense. I mean, she's, mm -hmm. that has been established and is doing well, and so she's able now to refocus a little bit of an, and again, it's her energy. It's not like she's leaving. She's just taking on a different role so that she can focus on some different things. She has this density uh, initiative where she's going to premiere 
a new body of work every year for the flute until like 2036, which is like the 100th anniversary of the piece or something like that. And then mm-hmm. it's going to give like a like a highlight performance of the la- every five years or three years or something. And I mean, it's just like uh, it's the kind of stuff like, like Megan said that we all sort of daydream about and and um, think about and sometimes take action on, but just to see uh, the different things she's been able to really like firmly put in the ground. Uh, it's, it's inspiring. And, and she's coming to the Big Ears Festival in Knoxville in, in March in 2017 here, and, and uh, I'm really looking forward to hearing her performance. It's going to be wonderful. So. I, I had a, a thought this past week that I think kind of can help summarize what we're talking about here. Um, I have a, a friend on Facebook that, like, you know how they have su- the subscription services where you can get a new pair of jeans sent to you every month or something like that? Um, this girl I know, she does one for makeup, <laughs> and she posted a picture of the inside of the box, and it said, if you can put it on, you can pull it off. And, of course, this is referring to, like, oh, I could never wear blue nail polish or something like that. But I think that really translates to the music stuff, too, where if you have this germ of an idea, like, if you can simply just get it to happen, then you can pull it off. And I think that's kind of what Claire did with Ice here. Yeah. I think it's really cool how long she stayed focused on the one project. Like, I I know something for me and, you know, a lot of other people that I just know in our field, like, we have this energy of, like, let's start this thing, let's do it, and then it fizzles because something happens, whether somebody moves away or or whatever, but we, actually, we've all read that bio that's like so and so has performed in this ensemble, and it just keeps going, and it's like twenty it, different you know duos and trios they performed. And it's like, well, that's kind of you know, what was the point of starting all these? Right. Yeah, and it's yeah, it's it's very much like oh, good for you, and you're like entrepreneurial like startup spirit, and I have that, but then I'm like, Laurel, come on, you gotta you gotta just stick <laughs> with it. Yeah. 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 I was on the flight up here to Illinois and um, listened to a podcast, the Freakonomics podcast, which uh, mm-hmm. I've had on my phone for a while. I haven't read the book, and uh, but I've wanted to, and I've never listened to the podcast. And I ran out of Doug Perkins's podcast, so I had to move on to something else, which I've been enjoying very, very much. And um, there was a uh, the Freakonomics episode I listened to was about maintenance. And uh, it speaks exactly to what Laurel's saying. Like, uh, we always have these new ideas, and uh, sometimes those are the ones that catch all of the attention. But what we also need people who are going to give money, for example, to the to the uh, important organizations that are out there and have been doing this for for quite some time and aren't new and shiny, but are like critically important to what we're doing. And and I know, I think as artists, we all suffer. Uh, struggle with that a little bit. We have new ideas and trying to decide which ideas to maintain and stick with versus which ideas deserve attention and action to put into play and how will that six months from now negatively impact the ideas that we had six months ago that are already in play and it's very, very hard to know when to pull the trigger and when to put it on the someday maybe list, you know, and, and I really struggle with that sometimes, certainly. Hmm. Yeah. Well, I think also, you know, ICE has so many initiatives and, again, kind of a flexible roster that it's 
it's almost like she's got this umbrella with this central mission and all these projects and people are feeding into that central mission. But it allow you know, we're talking about all these different projects and things. And in a way, I feel like that's kind of what you're doing also with Nifnor Fandy, you know, with having the festival and having the group. And it's very, it's flexible in that it can, you know, can run a summer festival and can perform at the summer festival and can curate things and can play a PASIC on Focus Day and, I don't know. So I think maybe in a way also it's just like having this central mission and then creating this thing um, that's marketable and can serve as an umbrella for the projects. Yeah, you're, it, I've definitely been inspired by ICE uh, since Neathnorf kind of got going. I mean, I, I, I love what they do and I love the flexibility of their model and the fact that they, when something gets on autopilot and is strong and, and has stability, they can jump tracks over to another initiative, whether it's like open ice is, if I understand correctly about, you know, performing. Um, I've been thinking a lot about like how Neef North can start engaging non collegiate level musicians and work with younger yeah. students and like create, really get at the backbone of creativity um, at, the, at the outset of music education and, we did a thing that I called um, North Speak this last year, where we kind of went out and taught sort of grade school students how to speak the language of Neef North, if you will. And we mm -hmm. did these projects with them um, uh, at the Joy of Music School in, in Knoxville, where they give free lessons to underserved children. And and um, and there was this boy there named Michael who. Um, really took to it and then came to like the remaining six concerts afterwards and came to our contemporary music festival last week. And like every time I put on a concert in Knoxville, which is fairly frequently, um, he's now there with his mom. And it's just been such an inspiring like uh, moment. I got this handwritten note from him and I, it's on my desk and like, um, I, I, uh, yeah, I, I just think the, these things can go in so many different directions, and having that kind of flexibility with Neefarth has been has been really. How, What's how his name is again? He? I'm going to send him a recruitment packet for JMU. <laughs> yeah, right. How, to how his old mom. is this kid? Michael. Michael, <laughs> and his last name is Scott. S C O T T. He's from. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I want to recruit him. Yeah, yeah, real important, yeah. real important. That's <laughs> nonsense. That's right. Hey. <laughs> right. Twenty. What are we in? Twenty minutes since the uh, since no nonsense about. Hey. Well. Sp speaking of ICE's flexibility and just kind of Claire's uh, attitude. I mean, I've learned so much about her just in the last couple of days, uh, just preparing for the episode. But um, let's see. Where did that go? Oh, oh, after she said they've given over 700 premieres, she said, you know, who knows if any of these pieces will become canon? Um, who even knows what canon is? And we'll all be dead by the time that happens. So uh, do the work you believe in now and let history figure it out later. And I thought that was, I thought that was really quote. cool. Yeah. I have a question for Andy. Yeah. Um, Andy, I'm just curious about... A, a little bit more about Neefnorf, um, of how you started the group and um, how it's kind of developed into what it is now um, and the projects that you guys have going on right now. Sure. Um, Neefnorf um, was born in around late 2004. 
um, with my sort of partner in crime, Carrie O'Brien, who um, is one of my best, best friends. I talk to her every week, sometimes daily. She lives in Seattle. She's a musicologist, uh, finishing her PhD at Indiana. Um, just had a piece in the New York Times about Steve Reich uh, and his 80th birthday celebration. Um, but I played in a group in college called the Base Four Percussion Quartet. That was a really important part of my education. Those three guys are some of my best friends um, still to this day. But um, who are they? With, uh, Pat Schlecker who plays timpani in the Cincinnati Symphony, and oh, cool. John Pajeski, who's a, a, um, one of the design, um, he works at a design firm downtown Chicago called Thirst, a double majored in, in design and performance, and then Steve Lundin, who is a band director at the Cal High School, um, but okay. uh, great professional. So, as you and you guys tell, were all at Northern Illinois together, right? Right. Yeah. Um, okay. Steve was grad while we were undergrad. Um, we were really close friends, but you can tell we all were kind of going in different directions. Sure. And the quartet wasn't going to work out anymore. Um, and it was around that time that um, I started to really get into, at the time, music that I could research, um, meaning like uh, we started to study a couple of composers in history class and things that like had percussion music like Steve Reich or John Cage. And this idea that I could sort of read about these people was like really inspiring to me. Like I really wanted to know more about them. And I hadn't been introduced in, to any of the composers whose music I had played up to that point uh, in that way. Um, and so that was kind of the initiative. We got into Bang on a Can and Carrie was getting interested in scholarship. It was like, what if we put on these concerts where we sort of like could like give a talk about these composers and of course in hindsight that was a little bit uh short-sighted or something you can give a talk about any composer and say a lot of different things that are interesting and they don't have to be in the history books but at the time that made a really big it was a big influence on us um but i also wanted the ability to play percussion sex cuts but then like i'd find some duo with a pianist by the same composer and i wanted to be able to do those pieces too my my appetite was just really large in terms of the repertoire I wanted to be able to play. And so that's kind of where the, the model came from. So we played together for several years and, and we're doing various things. And then in 2011, um, I was out at a couple of schools in residence doing some teaching. And I met um, two students at two different schools who were asking kind of non-traditional questions. They were really kind of grilling me about Feldman or, um, you know, they, they just clearly had a real interest in, in the things that Neefnorf celebrates. And I started to think to myself, what if I could get all those people together in the same place? What might happen? And then that's where the festival came from. It was just an idea that I had. And so um didn't have a full-time job at the moment so i didn't have a school where i could like host this thing at and so i cold called my good dear friend omar carmenatis and and said man do you have an hour and and <laughs> i just pitched this thing to him and he bit and we i just been to Furman. i don't remember if you were there megan for the u.s premiere of a back in yeah uh, i was there yeah yeah and um 
and I was struck by the beauty of the campus, and I thought it could be a real kind of retreat location for what I had in mind, and and then I just uh, pulled the trigger. I was working out at UT Martin at the at the time, so I was living away from uh, Aaron, so I had a lot of time on my hands just to kind of work around the clock because I lived in the middle of nowhere and was by myself, and um, so we just made it happen, and I've... <laughs> Learned a lot about all kinds of things I didn't really want to know about, balancing budgets and finding sponsors and all kinds of things. But, um, you know, like you guys were saying, you, we just sort of figure these things out as we go. So that was kind of the beginning, if, if that kind of shed some light on how things got started. So. Claire talks about uh, figuring it out. As, oh, sorry, Megan, go ahead. Well, I was just going to um, ask that because that first year it was just percussionists and a composer. But now it's blossomed into all, you know, being available to all instruments and composers and academics. How yeah. how has that changed over the years? Yeah. Um, well, I, I should take a minute and, and thank you and your colleagues, Megan, because I've said this several times, though I may not have ever said it directly to you, but there was about seven students from Eastman and Florida State who agreed to come to the 2011 Neefnor Festival. And had that not happened... It may not have ever, that might have been it. That could have very easily been the end. But we got some of the best players in the country coming to Neath Park in 2011. Um, and I'm talking graduate level, doctoral, in some cases, level players where the sky was the limit. And and the, um, the success that that put on the festival, I think, infused the ability for us to move forward and have a reputation that we could build this thing on. And I'm... I'm Sort of forever grateful for those those fellows in particular for having the faith in in the project and to Omar for helping you know get the word to those people because he was more closely connected to them at the time than I was and uh, it was a real well you provided what we were looking for we were like how do we we want to do something together in the summer we want to play music together we're interested in contemporary music like what can we do and then all of a sudden it was like oh. Andy's creating this thing. It's yeah. it was there was a gap there, you know. You yeah, put something it's there. It's always so. been it's always been repertoire driven. Not um, it's not really so much about. I mean, it is about the people now, and the community is a huge part of it. Um, um, but at the beginning, at least, we used to advertise the repertoire we were going to play. Like mm -hmm. this is what you get to play if you come, and and that's why you came. You didn't come necessarily to take a private lesson with. Uh, a certain person, you came to share this music together. So, um, but since then, Christopher Adler was the composer in residence. I had just worked with him on Planum Vortices, this solo piece that he wrote for uh, myself and Morris Palter. And uh, we had, had a great time collaborating and I asked him if he would come in and teach. And then from there, it just, um, I was like, boy, it'd be fun to, I think he, you know, he's a very accomplished pianist. And we started playing music uh, with other instruments, and then I immediately had the vision that I wanted. I wanted to do this for all the instruments, not just percussion. And it just took a couple of years to open those doors slowly. So, in mm -hmm. 12, we started a composition track. So Christopher directed four composers, and we still had percussion. And then in 13, I hired um, Ashley Walters on cello, who's a phenomenal cellist from Los Angeles. You guys should check her out if you're not familiar with her work. She's one of the kindest people you'll ever meet and a force uh, behind her instrument. Um, 
And then it just expanded from there. We sort of the next year opened it up to like piano and strings. And now this year it's, uh, it's open to all instruments. Last year we had a vocalist say, you're not taking vocal applications, but can I apply anyway? And so um, I said, sure. So we had a conversation about what that would mean. And, 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 uh, and she, uh, she came and it was really great. And I've enjoyed getting to know Allie and, um, she gave me some critical advice about how we might open it to voice in the future and, and what that would mean. And so I'm always learning too. I don't, I don't have all the answers, but luckily I've had a really supportive group of people involved in this from day one who they always say, surround yourself with people smarter than you. And that is definitely a mantra I've carried through Neefnorf. I, I'm really fortunate to, to work with the people that I do there, and, and I've learned a lot from both the fellows and the faculty. So, well, Laurel and I say it every summer. We say, like, we're going to get up to Neath North and at least attend, like, a lecture or something. Good. Yeah. Well, anytime the door is open, it's I learn so much from the, the talks and stuff. I mean, there's stuff way over my head that happens every year, and I, I it's always a, a highlight of my of my artistic season. I, uh, it definitely is, is worth the work. And for people listening and for us, what are the dates for this year and how do you apply? We just actually launched deadlines. Yeah, we just launched the 2017 festival uh, in the last week or two. It's June 12th to 26th. It's a full two weeks now. And Put the deadline is, yeah, the deadline is December 1st and February 1st. Um, for application, but the, de the December 1st early application deadline has a number of um, incentives. Uh, if you're an, we have always since the beginning given alumni a, a pretty substantial $250 discount uh, to try to, we've had people come back four, five times, like, which has been so flattering um, that they're finding it that valuable. Um, and of course the repertoire and the people change year to year, so there's always new content, but um, there's an early application deadline. There's an, uh, scholarships this year that we have that we will be awarding, um, both based both on, um, ability and need. Um, and, and, uh, so I really encourage people to get their application in by the December 1st deadline because it really does open up some opportunities. Um, and it makes our job easier. It makes us able to produce a better product when we really know what's going on in December because it, the part assignment grid, as you can imagine, is is some kind of Medusa-like structure, and <laughs> and um, I should give a shout out to both Eric Redder and Abby Fisher, who have joined Neef North's permanent staff in the last year, and have become integral parts of the team, along with Carrie. And uh, the the four of us are working on Neef North every day, year round. There. Uh, so the December 1st date is really, really helpful. Yeah, great. Um, Andy, I was going to ask you a little bit about organizing this focus day. And yeah. I'm, I'm sure there's a ton to say there, but is, is it possible to kind of summarize for us maybe all the way from having the idea, proposing the idea down to, you know, planning the logistics yeah. Um, well, obviously, through Neefnorf, it's clear that I enjoy curating concerts. Um, I love that creative part of 
of work and I often get to play on those concerts, which is an added bonus. Um, but, um, I joined the new music research committee at the Professor Art Society a few years ago. I don't know. Uh, it's been several years now and, and, and it's kind of assumed on that committee that you will at some point host the focus thing. That's our main activity within PASIC. Um, so I applied for this topic, I think four years ago and had it. We, we have topics approved several years in advance. There's a lot that goes into the planning. Um, so that day has quickly moved forward and, and come up to, you know, uh, in this case next week. And, um, so, um, I think we all know that the web and, and YouTube and all these things have made, um, it much more easy to experience things from all over the world. And I, of course, totally agree with that. And, and it's amazing what my students can like check out on their way to lunch on their phone. But at the same time, I don't think we like fully, um, because there's so much thrown at us, sometimes you just don't have time to check out any of it. And um, I went to Darmstadt in 2014, and I had already uh, gotten this topic approved, uh, celebrating the European avant-garde, and, and already had some interest in, especially the Strasbourg Percussion Group and their sextets, and I've been programming those at Niefnorf almost every year. There's just some music there that really speaks to me and that I've really enjoyed um, working through. Um, and, um, but then when I went to Darmstadt, I, I, you know, I heard like two weeks of concerts every day. There's concerts, uh, you know, every hour all over the city. I mean, it makes, it makes Niefnorf look like a classroom in a school. You know, it's just, there's so much going on um, and you can't go to all of it. And, um, but I was, I just really got turned on to all kinds of things that I had really never been exposed to in, in a meaningful way. Um, and it, it's, re it's really changed the way I talk to my students, like when we're picking out repertoire, because there's these pockets all over the world that you could spend five lifetimes exploring. Um, and if you can really get down in that rabbit hole, there's so much stuff that we don't know anything about. Um, and so, um, for this focus day, uh, there's a lot of music that is being played in, in Europe that is just not getting circulated in the United States for whatever reason. And, um, I tried very hard with the programming to represent, uh, my number one concern was to represent as many composers as possible, uh, to try to just give people a little taste, as many things as possible, and preferably something by those composers that hasn't been heard a lot. Um, um, for example, many of us may know Apergis's music, um, or, or uh, let's use uh, Donatoni for an example, and a lot of us know his vibraphone solo, Omar, but mm -hmm. as much as I study and talk about this music, I've actually never gotten to hear Mari, his marimba solo, played live. Um, and I think that would be something a lot of people might, might say is true, and so I had the opportunity to to ask Eric Willie to, to perform that piece, for example. Um, and so I'm hoping that um, these different composers whose music is represented will represent a bunch of different kind of rabbit holes where then people can dive into and they can get to know the sound world of that person. And if they like that, they can probably explore their contemporaries or maybe who they studied with and, and begin to explore that network and, um, 
I've always found that getting to know the music of a composer as opposed to finding out a certain piece has been more, um, uh, I guess, enriching in the sense of where it can lead you afterwards. And, and um, so that's kind of what we have on tap. There's a show Wednesday night, uh, big focus, our evening concert, um, and then five shows on Thursday at 9, 11, 1, 3, and 5. And then also a panel discussion that I've put together um, at, at the noon hour. Um, Bill Salek has kindly agreed to moderate that. And I really tried to invite non-percussionists um, from a diverse background. So we're really fortunate to have Ayun Huang, um, who, of course, is a percussionist at McGill, and Heinrich Larson, who's coming over from Europe, represented. But then also um, Christopher Adler, composer, who will be at PASIC. Um, and has got a lot of background with ethnomusicology and free jazz improv and uh, will be on the panel as will um, Christopher Schultes and um, Phil Ford from Indiana University, who's a musicologist. So I think it'll give the percussionists at PASIC a really diverse panel of, of people to, um, to hear their ideas about um, European music and how it relates to American music. And it should be great. I don't get to go because I'll be at the one o'clock session mm -hmm. setting up here. So please tell me how it goes. I'm really bummed, but uh, I'm gonna to get a record of it and listen to it later. So, Andy, how does it work inviting percussionists um, international from from abroad? Like, do you find that that's difficult for PASIC? Like, I I, always, I understand why PASIC basically has to be in the United States, right? It pretty much has to be. We talked about this actually on the last episode, um, running an international percussion festival. Um, but in trying to get artists to come from abroad, do you find that's hard as host of Focus Day? Because I assume that there's not a lot of funding um, and pe or people have to find their own funding. Do you find that most international artists are very eager to come or that it proves very difficult that PAS cannot, of course, pay for everyone's trip? <laughs> Yeah, it's extremely difficult. I mean, I was at Darmstadt with, I think, about 24 percussionists, including the the sort of faculty, um, uh, Christian Deerstein and Arnold Marinison, and, mm -hmm. and um, very few of those people uh, follow, ended up applying, despite the fact that I, I told them about this two years prior. And, uh -huh. uh, and it just comes down to, like you said, funding. I mean, they're coming from Europe, PS. Uh, is not in a position where they're able to pay any artists for really for anything um, at PASIC. And, um, and so what PASIC offers is incredible, but it does have this, this caveat that you're kind of on your own. And, um, mm -hmm. and so it's been tricky. Uh, the two artists who are coming from Europe uh, have university support. They're, they're teachers, just like many of us might have some luck going to Europe if we got an invitation because then we could go into pools at the university to potentially fund some of that. Right. My, my, I had originally hoped to get Strasbourg percussion sextet here. That was like always the game plan. Yeah. And just, we weren't able to make it work uh, because of a date conflict actually. Oh. Um, Jean Geoffroy was going to come over and play light music. His piece, I know you know this piece, Casey, um, where he does the, you know, the conducting and silence must be, comes out of that, but it's like a 45 minute thing that, oh man, it would have been cool. But again, it, you know, it, it's expensive. And, um, and he had a, a, again, is very busy and had a date conflict, but, but yeah, I, I 
we worked on that and we tried to get some of those things. And what people see at PASIC is, is really just a, it's like that, that photo of an iceberg, you know, where there's all the stuff below the water. And then like, mm-hmm. this is what we see. And that's the kind of refined part, but there's tons that go into it behind the scenes. I've been working on this for four years, you know, and, and in yeah. some yeah. way, just conversations and, and, um, but that said, I, I could not be more excited about what it, what we ended up with it, it it's it's really going to be great and um i'm really looking forward to it so. cool yeah, yeah i have a um, a question i know there's probably a lot of people listening that would be really excited to get involved in PASIC as more than just a participant and something that i've heard people say often is like well apply to play on focus day you should apply to play on focus day um and i think you know, perhaps some of the rep this year is so, you know, the avant-garde-ness, it's so difficult and you have to have really high performance chops to be able to do it. Um, So I'm curious, like I'm looking at the list and, you know, most of these people I know and they're established and then there are a few names I don't know. And I guess I'm curious, like um, those that perhaps all of us would be a little less familiar with when they apply to play, are they giving you recordings of them playing the piece or are they just saying, here's what I propose? Right. Well, um, I can only speak from my experience. This has been something that's been really tricky um, because when you host focus day, people start speaking as though you somehow speak on on behalf of PAS in like an official capacity. Like, (laughs) like, there's no training. There's no handbook. Like I just am doing this thing and, um, and you just kind of learn as you go. And then you're, you dump that knowledge cause you're never going to do it again. So, uh, <laughs> but I, I, I agree with you. Um, and in my experience going through the applications this year, I, I do think, um, I was mainly looking at repertoire to be totally honest. I, I was really trying to repertoire. I was really trying to represent the widest range of, of sort of uh, styles of composition coming from this niche as I could. And then I went in to see sort of who had applied. Um, and there were some people I really badly would have liked to involve. And I've actually made the joke that it, it's been hard. I, I, you know, the last thing I want to do is upset anybody or offend anybody. Like I have a lot of friends out there who applied and weren't able to be selected. And I could have, I could have put on a whole nother day or two with the number of applications, quality, high quality applications that we got. And it was gut wrenching trying to make those decisions. Um, and I kind of took it really personally because I, you know, I, I believe in what a lot of people are doing out there and I wanted to try to support them however I could, but obviously there's only so many slots. Um, but yeah, in general, I would say, if performers are a little younger or a little less experienced, um, whatever that means, it, it's never a bad idea to demonstrate. I have already played this piece and here's an example of that, as opposed mm-hmm. to here's this crazy hard piece. Yeah, exactly. I am going to learn it. And um, I have certainly submitted things like that in the past myself but it's always nice if you can show like this is me doing this and, and um, it, it makes it easier to pull the trigger um, with, with some of those things. But um, yeah, there, there were a lot of um, younger 
performers that I really would have liked to invite. I, I actually, my, my number one concern with this was I was worried uh, about not, I could easily line up the whole focus day with past Neefnorf fellows because those are the people who play a lot of this stuff. And, and I was really worried about not uh, that it not being perceived that I was only like giving out the gigs to sort of the Neef North people or something like that. And that's probably just my own psyche worrying about it for no reason. But, um, but uh, so I really tried to just sort of spread around the assignments and, and represent younger and older composers or performers. But it, and then, of course, I'm taking into account the compositions and the composers, too. And it was tricky, mm -hmm. really, really hard. Um, and there were some people who put on amazing applications um, who I really would have liked to put on display. But then, like, the, the person who the piece was written for, who's like an internationally renowned name or something, also applied with the same piece. And it's and so it's like... Now what do I do? What do you do? Yeah. Yeah. Really yeah. sure. Well, it makes you feel any better. Like, nowhere in my mind did I even think about, like, oh, I bet he's just going to pick Neath Norfolk. Yeah. It didn't even enter my mind. So yeah. I bet yeah. nobody's just, thinking about it like that. <laughs> I've been telling everyone, like, oh, man, that whole concert is, like, fixed. Oh, yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. Don't even bother applying. Yeah. It's just him and his buddies, man. It's like, if you... Yeah. Yeah, you gotta pay to go to Neef North if you want to. Are we talking about PASIC or the election right now? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Whole system is rigged. You know, Andy, I I remember sitting in on one of those the, those public new music meetings, and you talked a lot about planning for this. And I think we were in the year right before Michael Bump's visual uh, visual focus day, and I I remember getting frustrated with a lot of what various people were asking on and off the committee because, uh, you know, Michael Bump read his description of the application and what he was looking for. And then people wanted to know so much more, like, would this piece work? So are you looking for something that's more like this or like this or like that or like that? And I just got the sense that, and I never speak up at these things, but I did in that situation. I don't know if you remember this, but um, I probably remember it because I, I feel sensitive about speaking up. But it's sure. like, dude, please don't play the game. Just just apply with your put your strongest foot forward. If they like it, they'll take it. Don't try to play the system. It's like doing research based on the grant money that's available. No, do what you're good at. And you know, it's just it's just frustrating. I feel like people just want to play at PASIC more than play a specific thing. You know what I mean? It's like I don't care what I play, just as long as I play at PASIC. I need that. I have to play at PASIC. You know, and it's like, dude, no, that's not, it's not art, man. <laughs> you know. Yeah. Yeah. The, um, to answer, that kind of goes back to the question you guys asked about um, if I want to get involved in PASIC, You said Laurel, and like just not just attend, but I think a lot of people don't understand that those committee meetings. There's like dozens of committees, and they're all open to the public. Some of them will have the back half then be a closed committee portion where they have to take a vote or something and they really need to be able to have open uh, dialogue about certain things, but the, at least the first portion is all open. And I know in the new music research committee, it, it favors someone well, if they have come to the meetings and shown interest before they then apply to get on. Um, so I would encourage people to go and get involved in these things. And, and you're right, Casey, you should, you should be 
playing music that you're excited about and that you believe in. And then if you think it fits somewhere, throw in an application. And like we could all say, I have four times more applications that have been rejected than the ones, not just for PASIC, just in general. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Just throw it in and see what happens. And if it doesn't work out, it doesn't work out. You know. Yeah, I, I, I totally agree. So, so listen, you guys, we have this chat that we use to organize the show. Like, I have a question for Andy next or whatever. And about 15 minutes ago, Ben <laughs> said, me next. And oh, yeah. we've each now taken a, a turn. Oh, of stepping I got something too. Can I go again before Ben? Goes? <laughs> we've, we've each taken a turn interrupting Ben. So Ben, what? I I, I don't even remember the question now. No. <laughs> um, yeah. So actually, b- before I said that, Casey said in our little chat on the site here, he said, "I want to ask everyone where they first caught the new music bug. What piece?" And I I was thinking about it, and I had a very long-winded answer, but the very short-winded answer for me is Piano Face <laughs> by Steve okay. Reich was was my first kind of new music bug piece. And I remember seeing uh, a thing about orchestras and programming new music, and a lot of orchestras will say, oh, we're doing new music, we have Rite of Spring. Um, and it's like, well, at this point, that's not, that's not really new music anymore. Um, and I, Piano Face was written in 1967, um, so... You know, it's 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 basically. I mean, it's canon at this point. It's it's not new music anymore. Um, and you know, there's this whole discussion of what is new music, what is contemporary music, and I think it still falls squarely under contemporary music because it's not Bach. But the question for Andy, in so many words, is running a new music festival. How do you address this? In if there was a piece from ten years ago, even at this point, is that still new music, or are you really? only interested in what's what I'll call bleeding edge for the sake of it being brand new it, you know I guess it's kind of a long-winded question but if you could just kind of speak to that sure I I'm um, not really interested as much as when it was written as what um, sort of what the composer is trying to get at or explore and I, I actually think the longer I've been programming concerts the more I get interested in music that is chronologically older. Um, we're doing ionization that I'm conducting with UT in a few days, and to me, that piece still sounds brand new. I mean, it, we're doing it, it tomorrow. Yeah, we, it's six minutes long. We have an hour and fifteen minute rehearsal slot once a week, and at the same time, we're kind of, we're tackling twenty twenty five minute pieces sometimes, and I'm, I'm finding myself peeling like every layer of this thing back and. And I still don't feel like we're ready, you know, a week before the show. Like, there's just so much there. And so, um, yeah, I think, you know, I am I just get inspired by um, musicians and composers with with different ideas. And they're, they're sort of challenging or questioning certain boundaries and certain things. And, um, and it's not necessarily about it being the newest thing. And, in fact, I would encourage people to think about the second performance of a piece, because I think that's critically important. And it's something I try to do at Neef North a lot is make sure that pieces get their second performance at Neef North, not the premiere, because that's what's going to give a piece mileage and longevity and have a chance of thriving and being shared with, with a lot of people. Um, but, uh, we just did Barrios Linnea at UT, um, uh, two weeks ago. Uh, for the contemporary music ensemble, and that's a, a piece that's totally new to me, and I feel like I barely 
just coaching and I barely got to know it and I'm already ready to kind of dive back into a rehearsal cycle with that piece um, because it's so powerful. Um, so yeah, I guess I could see us programming Stravinsky at Niefnorf in the next couple of years now that we have so many instruments. Um, because the more I get into music of today, the more I am interested in where it came from and how those things connect and, and, uh, some of the inspirations that, you know, maybe influence those things. And then you can really start to do some inter interesting pairings, um, you know, with, with different concerts and, and you could potentially present a concert where Stravinsky was was the anchor piece that maybe got people in the door actually, and then and then you presented a bunch of different pieces through the lens of the Stravinsky, which is actually a super interesting idea. And it doesn't have to be Stravinsky; it can be Mozart, you know. And mm -hmm. uh, and so I, I don't think of new music as other. I I really have in the last several years thought of it as just a very natural extension of the history of Western art music. And, and I'm, I'm getting to be equally interested in Brahms as much as I am, you know, anything else. See, I, I, I very much agree with you on that statement that new music isn't, I don't like the word new. I mean, it's just a continuation of what already has happened. And there was sort of an explosion in the 20th century, obviously, but, but then I think that begs the question at that point, well, why have a new music festival? Like, what's the cutoff date for it? You know, because Brahms could be new music at one point, so. Right. Yeah. yeah. Well, and I, I think even in what we know is new music, there's still, uh, <laughs> I'm actually on the new music committee here at JMU for the, I guess, the second year in a row now, and our, our composer is Augusta Reed Thomas this year, uh, but we, of course, talk about rep that we could also do what other composers and things, and I feel like to uh, a handful of, of people in there, there is a definite cutoff date of within new music and what's technically the 20th century of what's new and what's not. And I'm glad well, you maybe not even a date, but there's a cutoff of style, like style and accessibility. Yeah, like, like I even floated. Oh, if people recognize anything in it, it can't be programmed. Yeah, yeah. So something I've been trying to, to to kind of say we should do is like, hey, well, we should see what other 20th century music the faculty and the ensembles are already doing, so that it's like baked, it's ready to go. We don't have to organize uh, players and all that, and we should we should try to put it on, which I think we've done some and some not. Um, but I floated uh, ionization. I said, well, we happen to be doing ionization, and you know, it's not like they shot it down exactly, but they were kind of like, um. Okay, yeah, maybe, but like it's like, what is that like old and dumb now? Like I, I agree with Andy, and I told my students, um, I said, okay, you look at all the rep we're playing. Ionization is the oldest, but it sounds the newest. Mm -hmm. it, it would you almost know, like be interesting to do a, a concert as percussionists, a concert entirely of dead composers, <laughs> right? Because <laughs> we never have that really, it seems. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, we're doing Harrison on the same show, and uh, with my freshman, I love giving the young students that early West Coast stuff because rhythmically it's generally very possible, but you know they've got a, a lifetime of learning there in terms of selecting sounds and and things like that, and it's a good way in for them to start of get exposed to collegiate level conversations, and mm -hmm. uh, and so we're we're doing some Harrison as as well, and it still which, sounds uh, which Harrison pieces. A song of Quetzalcoatl. Yeah. Uh, that's that's uh, one of the ocarina part. Uh, yeah, yeah, it's a lot of tam tams. They've actually been using the, the 
Third Coast recording quite a bit on Vic Firth's um, website as a reference, which is also kind of nice for the younger students. Uh, it's, it's really, really, it, it's a great piece. So my grad student uh, is coaching that, and it's been fun for him to like learn how to talk to undergraduates about selecting break drums and wine classes mm-hmm. and things, and uh, it's been a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. Yeah, to to stick on the, I guess the Verez train. Casey asked, like, what was the new music piece you heard? Mine was also Density. Uh-huh. Oh. Uh yeah. And it was at UT actually. The the faculty. Um, Shelly. Shelly Binder, yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. and I was a freshman, and I was like, that was awesome. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And at yeah. that time at UT, there wasn't a lot of new music being performed by anyone. Not by the faculty, not by the groups. Like, the weirdest stuff I played was in wind ensemble, if that gives you an idea. And, um, yeah, and percussion ensemble was there, but it was, like, trying to figure out what to do because the previous guy had just retired, and so it was in a bit of a hiatus, if you will. But, yeah, it seems like no matter what your gateway piece is, there's something about seeing it done live really well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's the thing I tell my students, and I... I kind of hang over their head and uh, I threaten them, <laughs> to be frank, is that, you know, we have a chance to expose this to people, but there's no faster way to turn people off to this than to give a very poor, uninformed performance of contemporary music. Because you know, it's on your shoulders. Like, you have to, you have responsibility by getting up there and, um, and we have that conversation and it's, as positive as I can make it, but I try to be really honest with them about those things. And um, I I believe very strongly that we all just need to be doing stuff that ex- makes us excited and that we're that we believe in. And if you get up and play that music, no matter what it is, it will. The audience can tell, you know, if you're invested in it. And and you know, uh, I think people think sometimes if you're into contemporary music, like that's all you listen to or that's all you like or you know, if it's not weird, it's not good, or something crazy like that. It's like the furthest thing from the truth, um, and, and uh, it's just one niche and one genre. And um, but I've always, I, not always, but I actually in, in undergrad, I, I did not have an ear for that stuff. Base four played hard hitting, up the middle, like stuff. Generally speaking, my quartet and. Um, and I think Steve Reich, to, to sort of come back to that question, was the thing that really turned me on to other lines of thinking outside of the, the sort of uh, uh, Western tradition. And, and then that, of course, opened me up to Bang on a Can and David Lang's music has been hugely influential on me. And, and that, you know, you just go from there. So Those of you who've answered that, I'm thinking back to Claire Chase, because she says 13 years old, Verez, which to me it seems like, wow, incredibly early. Um, ben, when was, how old were you when the Steve Reich piano phase was introduced to you and blew your mind? Well, I mean, like I said, it, that was a, a long-winded answer, but actually for me, I would say in a sense it started when I was in like early high school, I started listening to Indian music, like a lot of Ravi Shankar, which is not Western contemporary music, but just the out thereness of all the rhythm and things like that are I think very parallel so that's actually where I would say it started for me but as far as western music Steve Reich probably freshman year of college was that yeah okay okay well I, I 
I wanted to say this, but it's uh, I figured we'd kind of get to it, but I guess we didn't. But the uh, I, I feel like we, as teachers, we preach so much, and especially listening to a lot of things Claire was saying, we preach so much, like, go against the norms, be radical, push the boundaries. We say all this stuff so much, and I, I remember thinking back, like, okay, music history class, they show you Beethoven 1, they're like, look at this really interesting chord it starts with, which I forget what chord that is, it's like a secondary dominant or something. It's a C7 chord. Bam, DMA, look at him go. Um, so, <laughs> so, and, 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 and I remember my teacher saying, like, that is so, don't you hear how unusual and how out of the ordinary that is? Every piece in the music history book is out of the ordinary, rule-breaking, exceptional, and and then you look at the list of uh, you know what we're you know what here we're doing in composition seminar man it's like ligeti Zanakis, Stockhausen it's all gnarly stuff and I think I think like man I I got to kind of discover this on my own I felt like when I made my own decision to play Nagoya Marimbas in my undergrad um, or join the contemporary music ensemble and play Peter Maxwell Davies' Eight Songs for Mad King, mm -hmm. it was like my discovery. It was like my decision. So I, I think we have to be careful when we say, oh, yeah, break the boundaries, push the boundaries, and then all we show them are boundary-breaking pieces. The way they're going to rebel to that is to go write pop songs, and like that's what we don't want. So I, I feel like we're shooting ourselves in the foot a lot if, if we cram new music too early down young people's throats and I, I think of my progression it started with like Shostakovich like I remember uh, a teacher playing for me Shostakovich Symphony 8 Scherzo and I was like wow it's like so aggressive and cool and yeah it's tonal and, and all that but and then I remember seeing unanswered question I don't know probably the same year I saw it live and there was a progression you know it wasn't Zanakis metastasis to begin with. Yeah, I mean, I remember the uh, first time I heard Third Construction, I hated it. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, that's what we're in, that's what I think we're in danger of doing. You know, I feel like young people, you have to like look at what they know and go like, okay, I want you to like new music, so I need to make sure it goes A, B, C, D, E, F, G, and it feels like your discovery, not my, yeah. my forcing it on you. Yeah, it's such a tough balance. I've been having that conversation with my students a lot lately with setup repertoire. Um, my undergrads want to come and play a setup piece and they name the exact same four pieces over and over and over and over. Right. And um, because I think because they're known and they know it's a quantifiable thing that they know what it is and they can play that piece. But also because it has a medium to small setup and and I've really been challenging their like assumptions about this, and and so Casey, you nailed it. It's like it's such a fine line because we need to make sure if we push them too far, we lose them. But at, at the same time, if you don't push them at all, they will just do the same thing over yeah. and over. I over think part, part of that, like the same four pieces for multi percussion or set of percussion, whatever you want to call it, is that we kind of set ourselves up for that because every graduate school audition wants to hear, you know, Zanakis Raybons or something like that. And it's like, yeah. <laughs> yeah, but I, I think you're right. You have to you have to push them, but you have to know which incremental step they're on. So it's like, okay, now it's time for Zanakis Rebonds B, not A, <laughs> not Safa, and definitely not Bone Alphabet. I think like we get excited because we want them to do what we want to do, and that's always 20 steps above, you know, intellectually above where they are, and. Um, yeah, I, I, it's interesting. I mean, I I don't know 
if it's going well necessarily because I, I hear people preach we got to do this the real rep we got to do the real rep and screw all these composers who are percussionists writing music for percussionists um, which by the way that's a whole nother conversation I mean historically mm -hmm. that is something we have to go through all the other ones went through that we need to go through that too blah 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 I mean we need to teach the world how to write for our instrument just like the pianists have taught the world how to compose for piano and there's so much rep to look on for that information um, but yeah I can't tell you how many times I'm doing a master class and a sophomore it's like okay well and uh, what, are, what are you working on oh well I'm on green study number five and I'm on Peter's snare drum book two number two and I'm playing rebonds for you today <laughs> You know, and you're just like, man, you know, I used to like Rebond. I'm starting to really hate it because of this. <laughs> I really am. I used to play it. I used to tour around with it. Um, but, man, I have, like, I've just heard it so many times and so many times badly that I, I'm just like, ah, I, I just don't feel the urge to do it anymore. Sorry. You know. mm. Megan, know you look like you had a lot going on in your brain. <laughs> <laughs> I was just thinking of some, like, well, this is, I could comment on what Casey just said, but I I guess the main point was I've, that I've been thinking this whole time is that it wasn't a specific piece or composer for me, but it was the process of working with a composer that like really mm. yeah. got me hooked up. Yeah, and there are like two very specific instances, one in undergrad and one in grad school, and also at my school, like you said, Laurel, there was not a whole lot of contemporary music going on, and I just, I don't know, the, those two specific instances like were are kind of seared in my brain is like something that like when Andy you said earlier something you should do what you're excited about you should do what you're passionate about and those two experiences for me were like wow I really like this collaborative process I really like the idea of working with the person who wrote this music and I feel really special getting to do that and um a premiere or a second performance or whatever, but it just seemed like such a more special collaborative process to me of actually working with a living composer. Um, so, yeah. yeah. I I started a contemporary music ensemble years ago at UT, and I've had the same struggle that um, I want to introduce them to that process, Megan, and, and Casey, I've had this challenge of like, okay, here's a bunch of kids who I somehow got roped into coming to the meeting, and so now I've got this random group of instruments that I have to like put a concert together with. But, um, and usually they're like the best players in the school. They're graduate students or performance majors because, um, they, so they have a command over their instrument in, in, and as such, they're getting interested in contemporary music, which maybe is why they come to the meeting. So I, I luck out in that way that the people who come already kind of have those skills, but you know, um, there's a lot of repertoire out there that uses like really extended techniques on the instruments and, mm -hmm. and they can't play it. They're just not ready. Like, like what mm -hmm. Casey is saying. And so I want to make sure I'm exposing them to a lot of different sort of styles of composition because obviously contemporary music means everything across the spectrum of influence and tonality and, and geographical influence and stylistic influence. And I mean, notational styles, like it can be anything. And um, it's easy to sometimes program a, a kind of circle of, of American composers who have a tonal-ish language who is very accessible, and I, I want to get them into that so that they kind of learn about these people and, 
and can kind of appreciate that this stuff was just written recently. But at the same time, there's like so many other things that I want to show them. But if I introduce that too soon and if I introduce too much of it, they either can't handle it like technically or they can't, um, they're just not into it. And then they kind of don't stick with it. And yeah, it's a, it's a real balancing act. Um, but I will say in my experience, once they play a comic, they stay with me and they mm-hmm. they to buy in and and it's the same with the private students like here's here's this guy Zanakis read this chapter about where he came from and why he does what he does and we always use Zanakis but you can name a hundred other people and and um, well and that's why I call it a bug you know you yeah. have to get them you have to has to catch and then it's theirs or on their own you know but I always want my students to bring me repertoire. Uh, as opposed to me assigning them. And I will sometimes yeah. veto things or step in and uh, they tease me like, oh, we know you don't like this, but, or we know you like this or whatever. But I really try to, you know, I want them to do something they're motivated about because that then they're going to go practice and that's what they need to do. And we can straighten out certain deficiencies over time, but if they're not in the practice room doing something they're excited about, then it doesn't matter, you know, none yeah. of it. So, yeah. it, isn't it? <laughs> it's really challenging, but it's, fun. it's a fun journey. Yeah. This is just a, a little quick footnote going back to some stuff Andy was saying earlier about, um, you know, being the, the, it's your responsibility as a performer to, you know, give these great performances or whatever. Um, and we've talked a lot about new music. So I just wanted to share with everyone, in case you didn't know, Evelyn Glenny uh, has a series now called 50 for 50. Have you guys heard of this? No. She just had her 50, for her. Yeah, she yeah. just had her fiftieth birthday. I think it was actually last year, but fifty composers are writing fifty bars of music each for her. And I saw yeah. there's like a black swamp video of her playing a piece called Lincoln Logs for two log drums. But anyway, there's I think a, a great example of a comp- uh, performer that has been, you know, had a long history of collaborating with composers on things and here are 50 new, inter- I'm sure, interesting and very different pieces that we're going to get out of it. So I'm curious to see what Evelyn comes up with there. Carpus Quartet has a very similar project going right now where they're, you know, I mean, they've been around for so long and doing such amazing work. And they're, they, I think, commissioned 50 pieces for um, the next several years and they're premiering them. Yeah. And they, they're facilitating like a younger generation now of people you know, and collab- cross-collaboration. Yeah, the, the, the other one along this line that comes to mind is Hilary Hahn had that series of, was it, I can't remember the number, but so many encores, it might have been 50 also, um, and I know J- Jennifer Higdon wrote one for her. Wow, well, cool, guys, great episode. Andy, thanks so much for joining us. It's great to see yeah. you again. And I feel like we could chat for hours. It's so nice to just have some time to... Yeah. Well, we'll be sure to, like, maul you at PASIC and ask you tons of questions when you're working with the inside. Great job at Focus Day, day, by the way, now that it's over. Oh, yeah, thanks. It went great. Yeah, except for for that one part when your mic cut out and you, like, chucked it on the ground and yelled at Morris. That was unprofessional. Mike Truesdale just missed so many notes, it was unbelievable. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Oh, man. Well, it should be a lot. I'm excited to see you guys in... in, uh, Indianapolis in just a few days. Yeah, it'll be fun. Thanks, Andy. Hey, guys, just a a quick word on the upcoming guest schedule. We've got our our little spreadsheet here and confirmed guests to look out for are Steve Snowden and Steve Schick. So 
those are those are all the still a little ways away. But um, yeah, you guys can uh, all you listeners can start thinking about questions, and of course we'll do the usual post. And we always appreciate your questions, and and thanks for listening. All right, guys, take it easy. Bye. Bye. Bye.